0: Let's open up the Bible and look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul, continuing to write, says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word. We confess and believe what your word says about itself, that it's alive, it's active, it's surgically sharp. It's a hammer that breaks the rock. It is your word which tears down lofty arguments raised against the power of God. And so it's in your word and in the God of the word that we place our full confidence. We did not come here this morning to hear a man speak. We came this morning, Lord, to hear you. And we believe that when the people of God are gathered in the house of God on the Lord's day, and the man whom God has appointed takes up the word of God, that in that transaction you speak. So master speak, thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word, amen. Well, we have been studying Ephesians now since February, and we finally come to the end of Paul's mighty 202-word run-on sentence, which takes us from verse 3 of Ephesians 1 all the way to verse 14. And the apostle has, in that mighty sentence, stuffed whole worlds Of theology and we have only scratched the surface in our studies and he unfolds those worlds of theology as he propounds to us what the triune God has done in order to save us and he begins in the time before time in the world before worlds Where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together crafted the plan of our salvation and then brought it into fruition with each person of the Godhead playing their own distinct and separate cooperative role. And we have gone from the foreknowledge of God to the predestination of God to the regeneration of the sinner to the justification of the sinner by faith alone to be adopted into the family of God. And then we've gone to sanctification which is the process of being changed to be made like Jesus and we end in glorification which is when we finally come home. And all the sin falls away and all that is deathly and ugly is gone. And we are radiant and splendid and perfect. And the Holy Spirit, we're told, has a a current presence in our lives and a current power in our lives. And his presence and his power are God's good faith down payment that he will not permit his plans for us to be derailed. And he will see us safely home. No man can snatch you out of my hand. That's what Jesus said. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We are safe in him. And the Holy Spirit is our down payment. We got the Holy Spirit. We know we're going to get the rest of it. And now we come to this great, one of the great pivot points In the letter to the Ephesians, up until now, the focus has been on the mighty works of God on behalf of the believer. But from here on, the believer himself or the believer herself begins to become the object that grows into the spotlight And the pivot is marked, as it often is, by the use of some words that appear fairly often in the New Testament. Sometimes it's rendered, wherefore, as the King James Version renders it. Sometimes it's rendered, therefore, as the New King James renders it. The ESV says, for this reason. Now, what Paul's doing, what Paul's saying is, everything I just said about all the magnificent work of God on your behalf leads to some logical conclusions. And here they are. In other words, if you were chosen from before the foundation of the world, if you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, if you are the object of God's predestining love, if you have been adopted into the family of God, if you have been redeemed by his blood, if you have had forgiveness of trespasses and sins, if you have been given a measure of true wisdom and insight about God's ultimate plan and your privileged place in that plan, if you have obtained an inheritance... And have received the Holy Spirit as a down payment, then these things I hear about you secondhand are precisely the results that should be evident. The signs that you are possessors and not merely professors should be these things. You see, the only possible effect of the Lord Jesus coming into your heart to dwell with you and reign in your life, something which people cannot directly see in each other, is that your outward conduct changes, which people can see. And if there's no visible change to the conduct of the outer man, then there's no real reason to suppose that the Lord Jesus has entered the inner man in the first place. You can't get part of Christ's benefits and leave the other part beside. You get the whole Christ. And you get all of his benefits. Or you get nothing. In other words, if we're going to be theological about it, sanctification, the process of being made holy, must follow justification. The process or the event in which God declares us to be righteous. And if that doesn't happen, then there's no evidence that there's ever been any real relationship with Jesus. As James says, faith without works is dead. It's not a lively, saving faith. It's a false faith. Well, Paul here gives us a thumbnail sketch, a sort of a a back-of-the-envelope summary of what the changed life will look like. And we're only going to get to one of the two things this week. There are many ways that we could describe this summary of what will happen in the Christian life if you are truly saved. We could say that there is a vertical result and there is a horizontal result. That would be one way of looking at it. We could say that there is a separation from something, the world, and a separation to something, that is the people of God. Or we could say that there are two tests which must be passed. Not tests in the sense of entry exams into a prestigious school where they're testing what you know, but rather tests like you might run on a medal to prove that it's really gold or really silver and not a counterfeit. And I think that that's the approach that we will take this week, the idea of these tests. If you go to an estate sale or an auction You may find old jewelry there from time to time, and you might be interested in buying it, but only if it's real gold or silver. Well, how can you tell? Some of that stuff looks pretty darn good. Well, there is a very old method that has been used for centuries, and it's made its way into our English in a lot of other contexts. If you take that piece of jewelry and you dip it in nitric acid, Nothing will happen if it's gold. It'll just get a little shinier and clean up. And very little will happen if it's pure silver. But if the piece of jewelry, the earring or the ring or whatever, is merely gold-plated or merely silver-plated, you will get a very, very vigorous and obvious reaction it will begin to bubble furiously. It will turn the acid green around where the piece of jewelry is and it will produce this noxious green smoke. And then it quickly begins to actually dissolve the piece of jewelry. It eats up metals that aren't gold and silver. And this test is called the acid test. Well, these two tests that Paul gives us in Ephesians 1.15 are the acid test of Christian profession. If you pass the acid tests, you can be happy about yourself and where you're at. You can be assured and comfortable with the state of your soul. And the first test, says Paul, is faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, what do we mean by the word faith? Because that's a word that gets thrown around a lot in our day. You hear people say things like, well, I'm a, I'm a person of faith. Well, that's nice. What does that mean? It's kind of hard to define. Well, you know, I have faith in a higher power. Or I have faith that it'll all work out somehow. The only word that gets thrown around more today than faith is the word Spiritual. You'll you'll hear people say, I'm I'm not religious, but I'm a spiritual person, as though spiritual is automatically good. It isn't. The devil is a spiritual person, too. So what do we mean, more accurately, what does the Bible mean when it talks about faith? Well, really, we're just building on what we've learned in the last two weeks about trusting in Christ. To have faith in Christ Jesus is to place faith absolute confidence in Christ in such a way that you live as though everything he says is good and trustworthy and right. You're thrilled to hear what he has to say and then you immediately put his words into practice because you believe them and you think them to be good and right. So when Jesus says you must be born again then you say, all right, Lord, tell me what it is to be born again. I'm here to do what you want me to do because you're smarter than me. You know how life works. You know what I need. If he says, hey, you're not the center of things, and satisfying your wants and desires is not a wise way to live. Instead, you should die to self so that you can begin to have true peace and rest, and you say, oh, what a wonderful idea. I never thought of that before. I renounce self right now. And control over my own life. If he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, you've brought nothing into this world and you can take nothing out of it. If you have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Then we will say, Oh Lord, I see how much time and money and energy I've wasted pursuing muchness and manyness. And it hasn't made me happy, it's actually increased my anxiety. I will learn to be content with what you've given right now. I'll be content with my house. I'll be content with my car. I'll be content with my church. I'll be content with my wardrobe. I'll be content with my age. I'll be content with my body. I'll be content with my job. Lord, you put me here with the stuff I've got in the place I am. And Lord, I'm just going to bloom where you plant me because you're smarter than me. and You know where I need to be. Jesus says, the world hates me, and the world's going to hate you, too, if you're truly my disciple. And we look at that, and we say, oh, Lord, I want to be so much like you that the world hates me. I, I I want that, too, because then I know that I belong to you. So I renounce the smiles of this world and the prosperity of this world. I will no longer seek the favor of this world. Let me know the great blessing of being hated. For your sake? Jesus says, the greatest among you is the person who quietly and joyfully forgets self and becomes a servant. And we say, sign me up. I long to be emptied and to be accounted as nothing so that I may be great in spiritual power. Jesus says, hey, gossiping and backbiting and talking nasty about others is a sin. Don't do it. And we say, I will set a muzzle on my mouth. I will guard my tongue so that nothing hurtful to another Christian ever escapes my lips again. I am so sorry. Jesus says, lust is adultery. And we say, I'll never look at porn again. If I have to get rid of my computer, I'll never do that again. Jesus says, how can you believe when you seek glory from other people, but you don't seek the glory that comes only from God? You can't. And then we say, Lord, I pay no more attention to how many hearts and likes and Twitter followers I have. All I want is to hear you. All I want is to hear your well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Your like is the only one I want. You see, to have faith in Jesus Christ is not simply to initiate some transaction with him so that you can be confident that you will go to heaven when you die. That's only the first step of the journey. To have faith in the Lord Jesus is to have such an overwhelming, joyous confidence that he has the best information on how a human being should live in order to be happy and holy and useful that you wouldn't dream of rejecting it or ignoring it. You, you wouldn't dream of, of leaving that teaching aside. You wouldn't dream of disbelieving something that he asserted was true and then reorienting your life around that truth. And if you don't do that, or I'm sorry, if you do do that, your life will look absolutely different. It'll be real visible, real quick to everybody around you. This person is not marching to the same drum as the rest of us. What in the world has gotten into her? I do not understand her behavior. She used to be so easy to get along with. She did whatever we wanted her to do and we all just got along famously together. Now she won't talk smack about somebody behind her back. Now she won't now she won't lust. Now she won't go shopping for stuff we don't need no more. She's different. Now, why does Jesus merit that kind of authority over you and your body? and your thoughts, and your words, and your choices? Why should we listen to him? That's a a real live question in our day today, isn't it? We talk incessantly about ourselves, about my body, my choice, my orientation, my truth, my life, my needs. Just this past week in the New York Times, I read a story with the headline, divorce can be a radical act of self-love. Now, I just want to tell you, she's right. It's a pretty radical act of self-love to the expense of all other loves. And the author writes, my divorce nearly seven years ago freed me from a relationship that was crushing my spirit. It freed my children, then five and three, from growing up in a profoundly unhealthy environment because if I'm not happy... And that environment will be unhealthy for them. She says, there was no emotional or physical abuse in our home. There was no absence of love. I was in love with my husband when we got divorced. Part of me is in love with him still, and I suspect that will always be the case. Even now, after everything, when he walks into the room, my stomach drops the same way it does before the roller coaster comes down. I divorced my husband not because I didn't love him. I divorced him because I loved myself more. And then in the article, the woman goes on to say that she was a striving, work-obsessed, domestically challenged person, those are her words, who made choice after choice to prioritize her career in spite of the fact that she had a husband and two children. Those are her words once again. She traveled often, and when she was home, she was engrossed in her work, and her husband said he wished she would be more present more often. And when he said that, enough times, she divorced him. And now she's working on a book about ambitious mothers and all the benefits that flow to their children when they prioritize their careers over their children. I am not making this up. Kids, you'll be better off if mommy ignores you to work on the things that she's obsessed with. And we look at that. And Jesus specifically said, don't do things like that. I mean, he specifically said it. There's Very few reasons for divorce, and I want to pursue me is not one of them. Why should she listen to Jesus? Why should she even give Jesus a hearing? Well, Paul hints at that in the somewhat unusual way that he refers to Jesus in this verse. You probably didn't notice it. I didn't either until a commentator pointed it out. Usually when Paul refers to Jesus, he refers to him as the Lord Jesus Christ or just the Lord. But this, this verse, is one of a handful of times where he refers to him as the Lord Jesus. He does it once in Romans, and he does it a couple of times in 2 Corinthians, and then he does it here. Now, is that significant? Yes, I think that it is because every jot and tittle of the Scripture is significant. The Lord Jesus. The words in Greek are "Kyrios iesu. "Kyrios" means Lord. In the Old Testament version of, or in the in the, uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which was the Bible that Greek speaking Jews translated for themselves about three hundred years before the birth of Jesus. It used to translate the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh, the sacred divine name, as Lord. So whenever the Hebrew text said Yahweh, they would write in the Greek translation, "Kyrios," Lord, the Lord. Now, as I said, the Septuagint was the Bible that Paul read. So when Paul calls Jesus the Lord, he doesn't simply mean that Jesus is an important human figure like Caesar. He means that Jesus is Yahweh. He is God Almighty. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He is the one who killed all the firstborn of Egypt. He's the one who caused the walls of Jericho to fall. He's the one who gave the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrians as as they were destroyed by them. He's the one who gave the southern kingdom of Judah to the Babylonians and destroyed them. This Jesus, Yahweh, the Lord, flooded the whole earth and killed almost every living creature on it. You know, the last couple of weeks, there's something that came out a couple of weeks ago, and I've been kind of really meditating on it because it just gripped me. It's really awesome. There's now very strong archeological evidence for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah on the east bank of the Jordan River. Two weeks ago, a paper was released by a group of scholars and it was a worldwide multidisciplinary team of scholars and they were investigating the excavation of a site on the east side of the Jordan River called Tel Hammam. And the findings are absolutely shocking. So the, the, the archaeologists that, that headed this up that decided this tell was Sodom and we're going to dig it up and prove it, uh, there's three of them. They're all from Albuquerque, and they're all Christians. Two of them teach at Trinity Southwest University, and one of them is a professor of archaeology at the University of New Mexico. And so they began to dig into this tell, which is just a, a mound. And usually when you see those mounds in the Middle East, you're like, there's something under there. It's probably a city. And so they began digging in this tell, specifically to prove that the Bible was correct and that the story of Sodom was correct and that there was a city there that had been destroyed. Listen to one news report from Yahoo News a couple of weeks ago. As the inhabitants of an ancient Middle Eastern city, now called Tel Al-Hammam, went about their daily business one day 3,600 years ago, they had no idea that an unseen icy space rock was speeding towards them at 38,000 miles per hour. Flashing through the atmosphere, the rock exploded in a massive fireball about 2.5 miles above the ground. The blast was a 1,000 times more powerful than the Hiroshima atomic bomb. The shocked city dwellers who stared at it were blinded instantly. Air temperatures rapidly rose to 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Clothing and wood immediately burst into flames. Swords and spears, mud bricks and pottery began to melt. Almost immediately, the entire city was on fire. Some seconds later, a massive shockwave smashed into the city, moving at about 740 miles per hour. It was more powerful than the worst tornado ever recorded. The deadly winds ripped through the city, demolishing every building. They sheared off the top 40 feet of a four-story palace and blew the jumbled debris into the next valley. None of the 8,000 people or any of the animals within the city survived. Their bodies were torn apart and their bones blasted into small fragments. About a minute later, 14 miles to the west of Tel al winds from the blast hit the biblical city of Jericho. Jericho's walls came tumbling down, and the city burned to the ground. It all sounds like the climax of an edge-of-your-seat Hollywood disaster movie. How do we know that all of this actually happened near the Dead Sea in Jordan millennia ago? Years ago, when archeologists looked over, out over the excavations of the ruined city, they could see a dark, roughly five-foot-thick, jumbled layer of charcoal, ash, melted mud bricks and melted pottery. It was obvious that an intense firestorm had destroyed this city long ago. This dark band came to be called the destruction layer. No one was exactly sure what had happened, but that layer wasn't, called by a, wasn't caused by a volcano, earthquake, or warfare. None of them are capable of melting metal, mud bricks, and pottery. To figure out what could, our group used an online impact calculator to model the scenarios that fit the evidence. Built by impact experts, this calculator allows researchers to estimate the many details of a cosmic impact event based on known impact events and nuclear detonations. It appears that the culprit at Tel Al-Hammam was a small asteroid, similar to the one that knocked down 80 million trees in Tunguska, Russia in 1908 it would have been a much smaller version of the giant miles-wide rock that pushed the dinosaurs to extinction 65 million years ago. Well, the destruction on, of Sodom and Gomorrah was just astonishing. And when you go and you look at the biblical record and you look I started to dig into the topography of the area and I started to realize that, okay, this is kind of built in a river floodplain. And part of the reason they built it where they built it was because the Jordan River would flood every year and deposit silt, so it was really rich farmland. That place had been had been inhabited for 2,000 years before it was destroyed and then it wasn't inhabited for another six or seven hundred years after that. And nobody could figure they knew that it had, that area was just Nobody was there for six or seven hundred years. They've known that for a while, but they couldn't figure out why. Well, when the asteroid hit over the Dead Sea, it bathed the whole valley in molten salt water. And all that salt fell on the soil. There's still extra salt concentrations in the city, in the destroyed part. And it killed every living thing, and it wouldn't even let it poison the soil. You couldn't even grow weeds there for 700 years until finally the The sparse rains finally washed the the salt out of the soil and washed it back into the Jordan River and then into the Red Sea. I'm sorry, the Dead Sea. Think about that for a minute. 3,600 degree temperatures. The, The torch that I would use to weld and cut metal was only about 1,400 degrees, 1,500 degrees. 3,600 degrees. And then a wind, a pressure wave that traveled at nearly Mach 1. So you get this furnace blast followed by these horrible winds. The bricks melted. The bricks from the palace were found in the next valley over. And you look at that and you say, that is amazing. This was a precision strike by the armies of heaven on wicked people on earth. It couldn't have been any more perfect. It came from the southwest and it hit over the Dead Sea and it hit in such a way that the force of the explosion ripped through that valley north and destroyed everything in the valley. But up on the bluffs, the force of the explosion went straight up in the air and Abraham over here on this bluff was just fine. And Abraham in Genesis 19 comes and he stands on that bluff and he looks down the day after at that valley. And it said the smoke from its burning went up like a furnace. And I look at that and I just tremble. Jesus did that. Jesus, Yahweh, the Lord, did that. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost did that. You say, no, he's gentle Jesus, meek and mild. For you, favored one, he is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But not for everyone. Look at Revelation chapter 6 to see the gentle Jesus, meek and mild that some are going to encounter on the last day. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. And the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that had been rolled up And who can stand? That's gentle Jesus, meek and mild for you. Because you belong to him. Because he has reconciled you in himself. For his enemies, he is the terror beyond all terrors. He is the one from whom there is no escape. Now this is the God who is. Who who is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture? This is not the comfortable, wimpy God that we've imagined for ourselves, and then pasted his picture up on heaven, trying to obscure behind our picture the real and the living God. All of which makes the second half of Paul's name for Jesus. He is Kurios, Yahweh, the Lord, but he is also Jesus, the man. He was flesh and bones. He was sinew. He had a body that could sweat and bleed. He was born in poverty under a system of oppression, of military occupation. He lived his life in a backwater. It was the hillbilly country of his day. The scripture says of him that he was a man of no reputation. He was homeless for three years. He was hated he was lied about. He was betrayed by his follower and he was denied by one of his closest friends. He was subjected to an illegal trial in a kangaroo court. He was flogged. He was kicked and he was hit and he was spat upon. He was crucified, probably naked, while his own mother watched. And he was mocked some more and he died. And he died in agony. The God who drowned the Egyptian army, who swallowed up thousands of his own people in the earth when they rebelled against him, and who nuked Sodom, endured that. Why? To save his people from their sins. That's what it says in Luke. You should call his name Jesus, where he will save his people from their sins. Why can he tell you what to do? You figure it out. Do you really want to be on the wrong side of Yahweh? I can think of no greater way to get on the wrong side of Yahweh forever than to reject the baffling offer of pardon and peace and life eternal and joy and hope and rest, which is freely offered to all who would desire to have it. And then they would come. That's all you have to do. You just have to want it and then come and take it. He said, I'm the God who nuked Sodom. You can be my friend. And the world looks at that and says, nah. And they're going to face him one day. And they're not going to be clothed in Jesus. They're not going to be hid in Christ. It's not going to be good. They're going to weep. They're going to wail. They're going to mourn. we get to reign with him. Can can there be any greater privilege than that? I mean, think about it. You know, if you've got an enemy, you want to have a friend that's bigger than your enemy, don't you? Somebody that's got your back that could beat up your enemy. But if God's your enemy, there's nobody bigger. Come to Jesus. There is no place to hide from the sun. The only place there is to hide is in the sun. Now, we will pick up, not next week, I will be going next week, but in two weeks, if the Lord spares us, we will pick up again with the second one, the second acid test. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would impress upon us your awesome power, your astonishing might, your terrifying fury, and the gentleness and the love that is to be found if we are in Jesus. Let us put aside everything that would distract us, that would ensnare us, that would entangle us, that would keep our hearts knit to this world and not paying attention to you and let us flee to Christ and find in him loveliness and joy and safety and power. It's in your name and for your sake that we ask it. Amen.